my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Andrea Johnson. She is a certified John Maxwell leadership coach and a certified disc behavioral analysis consultant. Andrea helps high-performing, mission-minded women grow, lead, and succeed using the six tenets of intentional optimism. She operates a collaborative group coaching program called Launch from the Beach, and I'll have links to her website where you can find out anything that we don't discuss here or even review some of the information that we go over today. But um, Andrea, thank you so much for, for agreeing to have this conversation with me and, and sharing some of what you do. Absolutely. I'm excited about it, Dave. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's uh, dig into where it all began. Uh, where were you born and raised? And um, you know, what did your parents do? What were some of your early influences? <laughs> well, that's a long story that could take, you know, a year, but I'll condense it for you. I was born in East Texas. My family is all from that area and all the way down on the Gulf Coast. But I was actually raised mostly in Seoul, Korea. My parents were missionaries with the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. So I was raised overseas. I am what they call a third culture kid. And that influenced everything for me. It influenced the way I think. It influenced the, the way I speak. Um, people never can tell where I'm from because I have a very international accent. And being able to see the world from literally the world's perspective rather than from a small town perspective gave me the ability to kind of understand where people are coming from. But those, those are my main um, traveling all over the world. It also gave me a real big taste of travel and I really need to travel more. COVID was really hard for me. We would travel back and forth from Texas to Korea and always stopped halfway in Hawaii because that helps a lot, right? So um, <laughs> it really helps with <laughs> the jet lag. And uh, so Hawaii became known as the first place of America every time we'd come back and the last place of America every time we'd leave. So for me, travel is a big deal and just understanding and learning and enjoying other cultures is very influential in who I became. You, as a missionary, I guess you were kind of like homeschooled. Is that kind of how that works? A lot of missionary kids are homeschooled and I was very fortunate. South Korea has had a missionary community there since before the first world war, like in the 1800s. And they established a, a school, one of many now, but they established a school called Seoul Foreign School 100, and, 100 so years ago. And it was run by missionaries at, at the beginning, but it became a very well-known international school. It's part of the International Baccalaureate International School Programs. So I had the ability to go to school with kids from 65 different countries. And um, I had... An, fabulous education. It was many of my school friends would leave 
about 11th grade or so and go back to the States to the really nice boarding schools in the Northeast and like Choate and that kind of thing. So I, my, the valedictorian in my class went to, I think she went to Harvard, but there were only 30 people in my senior class. So at the time there were six international schools in Korea. I'm old. This is <laughs> back in the eighties. And now there are, are quite a few. So it, I was not homeschooled. There were very few of our missionary kids who were, but depending on where you are in the world, it is very likely that you are homeschooled or now virtual learning is very big. So in the international baccalaureate uh, kind of education system that prepares you to go into college and it, it gives you some degree, uh, some credits towards your degree, correct? How, I didn't know anybody knew about the international baccalaureate program. Most of the people that I speak to know the advanced placement, the AP, and they set up the international baccalaureate for students who were going to school from Europe at schools that were based on the US system. In Europe, they have 13 grades. In the United States, we have 12. So what would happen is my European friends could go straight into university if they got their little IB diploma. And for those of us who got it, I didn't. <laughs> um, at the time, I wasn't super motivated. I was just happy to graduate. So, um, but getting, I did take a few IB classes and that gave me college credits. If I had gotten the full IB diploma, I could have very potentially, depending on where I'd gone, skipped my freshman year of college. So yes, you're that's, that's right. Nice. So I, I guess that you went on to go to college and yes, study. Yes, I did. Um, what was your major course of study? Well, um, I, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and then I realized that there was a lot more schooling involved in that. <laughs> so I decided, why don't I just be a nurse practitioner? And then I realized, oh, they get to make decisions, but they don't have any authority. So why don't I just be a nurse? Because science was very practical for me and I'm, I was good at it. And I grew up in a very practical household. What is going to be the one um, profession that will have job security for the next 65, 75 years? This is my dad speaking. <laughs> And the answer was nursing. And I, here we are in 2022, and there's no question that he was right. I um, unfortunately am not a nurse. I was never designed to be a nurse. <laughs> and I got through two years at Houston Baptist University because my family, again, was from Texas. So as a missionary kid, a lot of the Southern Baptist universities will offer you scholarships. And I really wanted to go to Baylor really bad, but they didn't offer me enough money. And Houston Baptist University said, we'll pay everything. And I said, hello, <laughs> here I come. So I ended up in Houston for two years, which is a huge town if you've not been. Um, and the nice thing about their nursing program is you do two years of prereq and then you go into the Houston Medical Center and do all of your nursing school. So I thought, this is great. My family's over in Southeast Texas. It's only a 90 mile drive back and forth. And I got to my first like pre-nursing course and said, but literally like my, <laughs> I woke up the morning I was supposed to go to my pre-nursing class vomiting. And I just said, I just can't do this. And um, so I, I switched gears. I was a performer and a singer and I loved musical theater and I loved entertaining. And this is long before I took any personality tests, right? All I knew is that I, I was a cheerleader. You know, I loved all of that. And so I had friends who were going into the music business and we're heading up to a different Baptist school in Nashville called Belmont University. And they said, we're going up there and we're gonna get our music business degree. I said, 
that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the height of the Christian music industry. This is 1988, 87. Um, I did take a year off. One of my stories in my journey is I have always struggled with my weight and I have always struggled with my self-image. And so I put myself in the hospital in between my sophomore and junior year of college into a 12-week inpatient program for bulimia and depression. And that was where I began my personal growth journey and which kind of culminates in becoming a Maxwell leadership coach. But that's the, that's the beginning seeds of saying, hey, these are tools I need to actually grow and to become more of who I am and to understand who I am. And part of that was going to a totally different school and a totally different major. So I ended up graduating from Belmont with a bachelor's of administration, uh, business administration and a concentration in music industry. And the lovely thing about Belmont is it's right on Music Row. And I went to school with um, let's see, I don't think Trisha Yearwood was there at the same time, but down the hall from me was Leanne Womack. And my college roommate worked for Alan Jackson for years. I worked for some Christian music record companies and some different artists. And it was really interesting and very exciting. And when I graduated, I moved out to Los Angeles to work for Sparrow Records, who was out there at the time. And if you're not familiar with Christian music industry, these are big (laughs) labels. Um, So that was in 1989 and realized within months of being there that Los Angeles was not for me. I might've grown up in a city of 11 million people in Seoul, but I just was not cut out for that kind of life. It was very difficult to make friends. Nobody was, it seemed like nobody was genuine there. And from a, for a Texas girl where everybody walks down the street and says, Hey y'all, it was just really hard. So I struggled and um, another record company paid for me to come back to Nashville and work in their marketing department for a while. And I realized I just, I needed out of the music industry. It's just rough. So I moved home for three years and struggled trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. And eventually realized that there was a piece of me that felt very called to some kind of ministry. I knew I wanted to work with women. I wasn't sure what it was. So this is at like 24, 25 ish. And so I wanted to go to seminary. My dad had graduated from Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And so in my mind, that was of the Southern Baptist seminaries. That was the only one I would go to. And he cautioned me at first because it's highly subsidized by all the little blue haired ladies that give every Sunday morning. And so I waited and about a year working and getting more business administration under my belt. And I went in January of 94 to Southwestern Seminary because all I had to do was update my application and I got in no problem Um, and got there. And within two months, I had basically met my husband. (laughs) Now, I didn't, I didn't quit (laughs) quit my (laughs) school, Um, but it was a very interesting time of turbulence in the Southern Baptist world. And it was, um, interesting being a woman in some of those situations, but it was also laying the groundwork for me to say, I, I want to help women. And so I have not finished my 96 hour masters of divinity. I'm about 66 hours in, but, um, I love studying and that, that was another piece of personal growth that it it just kind of birthed in me this desire to truly learn. I joked about high school saying, I 
I wasn't real motivated. And then I, when I got my college degree, I remember walking across the stage thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> I don't remember doing the work for this, but in seminary, I was so motivated. I was so, when you, when you find a thing that you love to study, isn't it amazing how you just zone in on it? Mm. And I have greater than a 4.0 average and that includes Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I found something that I really love studying. And then I realized this is something that's really deep for me, but it's more than just the spiritual journey. And so that was just yet another step along, along my, my life's path to get to becoming a coach and an empower of women. One of the things that you said early on in, in this, you, you mentioned you struggled with weight and bulimia I know that in our culture that that isn't that uncommon with with young women. Um, it's it's more common in young women than than young men. And I, I wonder. Well, I I have a fifteen year old daughter, and you know I, I worry about her. You know, with such a our society putting such pressure on our young women to always be beautiful and thin and all that. And I, and I wonder where do you think that kind of, what are the roots of that for you? Have you explored that at all? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, for me, it was less societal pressure for looking a certain way. I'm not even five feet, two inches tall. So I am never going to be a supermodel. <laughs> um, I think now there's a whole lot more diversity in that area. And there are parts of me that think I should at least try as a 55 year old woman, you know, um, but that was never really what it was about for me. For me, the bulimia was, and this is probably I don't know the statistics. I'm just going to say at least 50% of the women who struggle with an eating disorder, it's not only, it's not really about what they look like. It is an internal conflict. And I had plenty of those. And I look back now and I can see what some of them were. I'm a very, I'm a strong woman, right? And in the South, you need to be standing behind a man. <laughs> pulling strings. And we do that very passive aggressively in the South. We do that very passive aggressively in the evangelical culture. And my mother was an extremely strong woman and smart. And I mean, she worked for the Red Cross, volunteered and rose up in the ranks to supervise all of the volunteers for Asia and the Pacific. She was not allowed to take a paycheck, not because the army said so, but just because of the, the rules and regulations around equity for missionaries. She was a GS 13 in the system, which I think is a Colonel. Um, so that tells you a little bit about my mother's ability, but she marketed herself as a motor mouth and as, you know, hi, I'm just Judy, you know, and I, I describe her as a bottle of champagne, right? You pop the cork and she's here, right? It's like the bubbles are always there. <laughs> 
but you could, if you knew her, you could see well below the surface, there was a very deep river. And she is probably the one who influenced me most in my desire to go deep spiritually. Um, we unfortunately lost her in 2017 to breast cancer, but as she neared the end, it just, nothing else was important to her other than just that depth. And she kept going deeper and deeper and it was beautiful to watch and it was very inspiring. But for me, there was seeing my bright, strong, beautiful mom always living in a box and not quite knowing what to do with myself and not quite knowing how to fit into whatever the cultural situation I was in dictated. And I was always too loud. I was always too opinionated. I was always too much and which is great for theater and works well on the stage. But even my mom is said to me, not everybody wants to hear your opinions, Andrea. And here I am, <laughs> 55, people invite me on their shows to hear my opinions. And that that's a long road. That's like a 40 plus year road to travel to get to the place. And still, I think, do they really want to hear my opinion? And I know I have a couple of books in me and we joked earlier, you know, you said, do you have some books out there? Like, not yet. And part of that is just overcoming some of those mindsets. So I think that for many women, it is the understanding, not so much that they have to comply with just the bodily expectations, which that's changing a lot now, right? That's really changing. It's beautiful to see the diversity and the way we're changing the way we look at things. The problem is not there. The problem I think is in the mindsets and in the way we're taught about how women should think and act and look. And, and I don't mean look in bodily form, but the way we should appear. And I, like I said, I come out of the Southern evangelical culture. So there's a specific demureness that women are supposed to have. And that's, I think for me, the bigger roots. Um, and it was never being able to measure up in those areas um, that really caused that to happen for me. And then of course, I, I just went deeper <laughs> into them as a seminary student and as a, my husband's a pastor and as a pastor's wife. And so I have stories throughout my adult life even that reinforce some of that for me. And so it's been shaking off some of that and taking down of those, um, those kind of I don't know, maybe strong towers in my life, just saying, you know, I don't need that. And it doesn't, not only does it not serve me, it's harming me and it's harming the people I serve and being able to let go of some of those things has given me control in other areas. Now, to be clear, I also had gastric bypass surgery 17 years ago because I never really got full control. So I weighed 310 pounds on March 31st, 2005. And so that is also part of my journey that I actually help women with. I mentor and, and encourage women who are taking that journey of that pretty drastic step of gastric bypass because it's, they feel like it's the last kind of straw for them and, and they really want to take control. So um, I think it's more than just that. So here's my encouragement to you as a father, build your daughter up for who she is, celebrate her for who she is. If you're Maxwell leadership trained, you understand how to do that. And when she understands that she is created uniquely and for do exactly what she's supposed to do and to let all of that come out, then she's not going to feel, she's going to be less likely to be influenced by those things. And she's not likely to feel some of that. So this is a conversation that I have not had on here. And uh, 
and I and I have so many questions. What's what's the difference between anorexia and bulimia? Well, I'm going to start out by saying I'm not a medical professional, and I also have not been immersed in that world. It, those are cycled. I think they are both psychiatry and medical terms, um, and I have not been in that world in a very long time. But at the time, the way bulimia was described was binging, and anorexia is described as starvation. There was also at the time, and there's others, um, there are, I met a young woman this last summer who with an eating disorder, I forget the name of it, but it had to do with, she only ate specific types of foods. I was in the 12 week program with a young man who was only 16 years old, who would only eat cantaloupe and cottage cheese. And he was a motocross athlete. Okay. Um, and when he came in, he, he was taller than me and probably weighed 90 pounds and had black circles under his eyes. And within 12 weeks, learning some of the stuff, he completely changed the way he looked. Now, I, I don't know if that's what he had was that specific type. They were treating him for anorexia because at the time they didn't know, uh, or they hadn't defined the, all the different nuances. But in general, bulimorexia is the bingers who then turn around and purge. So it just depends on, again, I am not up on all the modern lingo, but um, that's my understanding of it from back then. So I haven't paid 100% attention. So I want to be clear that I'm, there's probably a listener that's going like, no, no, she's wrong. It's this. So. <laughs> so on the bulimia side, that was from, from binging mm -hmm. and was it, I mean, I, I, I'm curious the, the driving forces in that, um, is it more, because I, I know that a lot of times we do things that we have control over because there's so many things that we don't have control over. And so we take charge of a certain area of our life. And that's, that's our area of control. And good, bad, or indifferent, sometimes it can be harmful. You have hit and the nail on the head. Yes. So in, in your life, well, at what age did you start binging? It started with sneaking and it started um, the earliest I remember because my family were missionaries in Korea. We went in 1974. We took giant crates of stuff. We had a house that was built in 1960 or 63. The entire second floor, half of it was a walk-in attic where we stored canned tuna, peanut butter, jello, canned green beans. And in churches, they used to do what we call a pounding where everybody would just bring a pound of something, non-perishable items. And then we would pack it all up. My dad could pack, you would not believe what he could pack into a crate. And so we would take those things because at the time they had open markets. They didn't have supermarkets with canned goods. And we had a big deep freeze um, where once my mother started volunteering for the Red Cross, we got a sticker to go on the army post, which was at the time Yongsan in Seoul. And we would go to the little Baskin Robbins and the Baskin Robbins store would, instead of selling the little gallons or half gallons that you see now, they had the big five gallon drums and they would take this slice thing. This is, sorry, this is just a lovely little 
tangent, they would slice off a gallon for you, put a lid on the bottom and a lid on the top. And we would take those home. And we always had several gallons of ice cream. So my earliest recollections were of finding things. I think it really started with eating too much in general, because I was genetically predisposed to being chubby. That's just my family's genetic code. Um, things like the Korean version of Ritz crackers. I would get an entire package that was maybe the half a sleeve of what a Ritz cracker thing would be now. And I would just eat the whole thing in front of the TV and not even notice, right? It was, this was a soothing technique. And that was, uh, my son has ADHD. So we use that term for the way he fiddles with things. We call that soothing. And that was, I see myself as needing some kind of a soothing because I was, like it or not, I was seven years old. I was uprooted and hauled 13,000 miles away into a completely different culture. And I didn't know how to handle it. And it's great that we're resilient. And there are ways in which I would never trade my experience for anything. But I see now the way they train missionaries and children. My sister actually has done a lot of work training missionary children um, in what it means to be in a third culture so that they're a little more prepared, but I was not prepared. And I didn't know what to do. And that became my soothing technique because I'm a good girl, right? I don't, <laughs> I mean, even in, in high school, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs. And there was no drinking age in Korea. There was no farm. You go to the pharmacy and say, I need this thing. And you didn't have to have a prescription. And, and it wasn't that things needed to be regulated. It was just a different culture. We could go into nightclubs and dance and get the beer if we wanted to at 15. But I didn't do those things because I'm a good girl. And so what I did do was I would eat and I would take a, one jar of peanut butter and I'd rearrange this. This is how calculated it gets. I would rearrange them in the box so that it didn't really look like one was missing, right? You don't just take one <laughs> gaping hole or I would take a, a thing of jello and hide it under my pillow and just get a hit or two of sugar. Um, and it became this way of soothing myself and controlling what I could. So the way you say it is exactly right. Even at the beach, we had a beach that we would go to, which is where my, what my program is named after is this amazing ecumenical missionary community where everybody had a fair shot. And it was, we were all kind of on a level playing field and we were all included. There was a lovely bakery and the kids learned that we could go and order bread for the next day, or we could go and see what they had available. And I would just go and get a pan of cinnamon rolls and go sit on the beach wall and eat the whole thing. And so those are the kinds of things that, that started out as, and then by the time I hit high school, I was seriously doing this. I would pack a lunch and then I would have money that I had squirreled away on the side and I would buy lunches and I'd eat two, or I would um, uh, come home and hide in my room eating the crackers that I had purchased at school and brought home, or, oh, and my sister has this famous story. We had a we could get on the city buses or the subway and ride across the city as children. And my parents never worried about us, which is crazy, but um, it was fairly safe. And we would go to, we had a little club that we could go to, where we could swim. And we famously, these stories, my sister tells of, they had black market people who had like snicker bars and butterfingers and stuff. And they were laid out. It's like the classic laid out on this little blanket right by the bus stop. And she loves to tell the story. I was probably in fifth grade and she was in first grade and, or I was in maybe 
or kindergarten. I don't know, something like that. And I actually took her bus money, talked her into giving it to me and that we could sneak her on and off the bus so that I could buy a Snicker bar. And I ate the Snicker bar and then the bus driver would not let her off the bus. (laughs) (laughs) And to this day, she remembers the story. And for the longest time, I see really angry. I was like, let me, please let me just live. I'm never going to live that down. Please let me let it go. Now I see it as, wow, that is how I was crying out for help. And nobody knew how to help me. And when you don't know where to get help, then you feel powerless. And when you already feel out of control, you feel even more out of control. And so I did exactly that. I controlled what I could. I looked, I did perfect makeup and perfect hair. I had the Sheena Easton thing, or I had the Dorothy Hamill for a really long time. And I, all of my clothes were like very preppy. They all matched, could have been on Miami Vice, right? I mean, it's just like all of that together. And yet my weight just kept going up and up and up. And um, by the time I hit college, I was so bad my sophomore year of college that I would count the days that I could miss class and still pass. Now, granted, they're paying for everything, right? (laughs) I don't have to pay for anything. And I would sit in the apartment that I shared with a roommate with all the curtains closed. And I would just sit and eat bluebell ice cream all day and in front of the television and order things off the television and racked up debt and did all of that because I just still did not have the tools to help myself. And nobody else knew what to do other than to say, stop it. (laughs) You know, it's like new heart, stop it. And that doesn't always work, right? We have to give people the tools. So when I look back on all of that, I see all of that as fueling my journey to turn around to women today and say, let me give you the tools. Let me help you. Let's empower you to make different choices that take control of your future in a way that's productive. That's, that's awesome. And I, and I love the journey that that took you to where you are now you're coming from a place of growth you've been there you know the the pain and the anxiety and the depression that comes along with with that and you can be empathetic with the women that you're helping you've walked that that path and <clears throat> I'm I'm really curious uh, because you talk about intentional optimism and when you're in that frame of mind where you can't even see the <laughs> the bright side, let alone like think that there is one and you introduce intentional optimism and I, and I want to understand, well, the, the six tenets that you you've okay. established. Um, but what, what does that mean? Intentional optimism? I, I think that I understand it, but I want to hear it f- from you. <laughs> <laughs> um. So to be intentionally optimistic is to decide to move forward in a way that actually makes the future better. And it doesn't have anything to do with what we call toxic optimism. I cannot, I mean, I'm a very sunny person, 
but I am an Enneagram six. And um, now on the disc, I'm an ICD, right? So I'm a very high I, but I also have a really high C. So I'm very um, extroverted and I love being around people and I love sharing my ideas, but my very high C means I have lots of detail in there. So I see the big picture and the small details at the same time. But I'm an Enneagram six, so I'm a planner and I, that works well for me. Um, but I can, I can look down the road and I got this part from my dad. I can see where that last domino is going to fall. And my dad does it in the like negative way. We always like, oh no, don't touch the domino. The world's going to end, right? It's a, you know, those people it's like, well, if you, if you open that particular box, the world will end, right? It's like, how did you get there? And he could see it, you know, it's like logical for him. I want to be able to teach people how to do that in a way that they can say, all right, what's that first domino that's going to fall and how can I get to, or I can adjust, right? I can always adjust where I'm going. And so that's a general understanding of what it means to be intentionally optimistic. It doesn't mean that we are, it doesn't mean that we're happy or sunny all the time. Um, I've got plenty of my own days where I'm really grumpy. And <laughs> um, I have a 13 year old at home, right? So it's like <laughs> a 13 year old boy, no less. So I have days where it's like, I look at him and say, Buster, you just do not want to press those buttons today. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that I'm not growing and learning. So the six tenants, you want me to walk through those real quick? Yeah, please. So I, I described them. I shared just a minute ago about the beach that I grew up at and it's called Dechun, And it's about halfway down the South Korean portion of the peninsula. And it's on the West coast for about 75 or 80 years. The missionary community leased that from the Korean government. And we built what I best described as maybe a, a, a East coast Adirondack kind of lake or beach culture right there. We had tennis courts, we had a lodge, we had um, cabins that we owned. And I mean, I think we paid $3,000 for our cabin and that was huge at the time. I was like, oh my gosh, how are we gonna pay this much money? The fact that my parents saved that much money on missionary salary was crazy. But we also had, I learned to be a lifeguard there. We had um, every Sunday in the lodge was a different missionary preaching. So it was like a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, um, Seventh-day, uh, no, not Seventh-day, um, Nazarene, you name it. It was all different, uh, Salvation Army. And so it was always a different perspective. We had a musical every summer. I, by the time I was in high school, I had the lead for two or three of them for off-Broadway, you know, Broadway type and Gilbert and Sullivan shows. It was a place where we could experiment and grow and learn and do. I learned all of my swimming there. Again, I was a lifeguard there. I was the head lifeguard my last year of high school or my summer after I graduated. And so for me, being at the beach was a place where I knew I was always going to be safe and I was always going to learn and I was always going to grow. So I very much identify with the fact that, um, that that's a place for, that I want to create that kind of community. The other thing we did down there um, at Tatcham Beach was we sailed. And my dad started with a little sunfish sailboat and then he graduated up to a laser. So I like to describe intentional optimism as a sailboat because I think that in order to get anywhere, we have to want to be someplace else and we need a vehicle to get there. And for me, intentional optimism is that vehicle. Um, if I say I'm a professional encourager, empowering women to take control of their future by going into business for themselves, I need a vehicle for them to do that. And we always start with awareness and personal growth. So I describe it as this is your sailboat. 
optimism is, or optimistic is the first tenant, and that encompasses hope and confidence and being able to see the future. And that's your hull. That's the base of your boat. Without, um, without the boat, you're going nowhere. <laughs> the second tenet is present. And if you know anything about a boat, you need something that's going, if you put a sail up, and you don't have anything going back down into the water, you're in Florida, you probably boat a little bit, but if you don't have anything going down into the water on a larger boat, it's called a keel, on a small sailboat, it's called a centerboard or a dagger or a dagger board. And if you don't have a centerboard going down that has enough depth to keep you from blowing over, you will just capsize every time. So the tenet of present is our centerboard. It is what keeps us grounded. It's where we understand a wonder and we celebrate and we have um, the ability to, to see things in other people that we might not have known were there. Um, present is something that's very, very, um, people relate to that a lot. And of all my podcast episodes, the importance of being present is the most downloaded. So it's like, this is your centerboard and you gotta have it. It's like a good taproot on a tree. The third tenet is energetic, and this is your sail, right? It includes your mast and the boom and the sail, and it's not necessarily where your energy comes from, but it captures your energy. So this includes excitement and a spirit of industry, the ability to actually say, what do I want to do? And then I'm actually going to do it, always looking for the next thing. The fourth tenet is courage. If you have a boat and a centerboard and a sail, but you have no rigging, no way to pull tension on that sail, you're not going to go anywhere either. You're going to be at the mercy of if that sail like flaps around and the wind catches it, then it's going to flap around again to the next side as soon as the wind turns. So courage is understanding that we need to have a little bit of tension and we need to use that tension to either let go or pull. And it encompasses being a leader. It included, includes being um, having vision and being undaunted, no matter how many times you capsize because you didn't have the right tension, you're able to write it. Oh, the stories I can tell of my dad taking us out on the boat and just not warning us and capsizing. <laughs> I thought I was going to sunbathe, not so much. Um, and then he would be treading water and said, write it yourself. You know, I'm like five, one and a half. <laughs> And even then I maybe only weighed 130 pounds. So riding that sailboat is a big deal. But when you learn how to do that and become undaunted, then it's okay. Then it's like, oh, I need to pull the tension tighter. And to understand that when you get a lot of speed going, you might need to let the tension out a little bit to slow down. So you don't totally tip over, even though there's this exhilaration that comes with leaning out over the side as you just fly across the ocean. The fifth tenet is wisdom. And that is our rudder. I think it makes sense to think that this is the direction that we would go on a bigger boat. It would be your wheel. And to say, I want to have um, understanding. Wisdom helps you understand if we're talking boating terms, it's the currents, the winds, um, the, uh, the conditions and what your boat can do. So in personal growth terms, we think I want to understand people and I understand situations and I want to understand all the sides of certain things. Then it also has respect and your words, right? Um, every single thing that we do matters and everything we say inside our heads and outside. So this is the tenet of wisdom and this is our rudder. This keeps us pointed towards that island in the distance that we want to get to. So we have our boat of optimistic, our centerboard of present, our sail of 
energetic and our rigging of courage, our, our rudder of wisdom. And then we pull it all together with an intentionality of having, of getting the boat in the water and going. This is our plan. This is making sure we have provisions on a bigger boat. If you want to do longer than a one day trip, you might need some provisions. If it's a boat with a motor, you need some gasoline. So um, that's how they kind of all work together. And my goal is to, like I said, empower women to change their future by going into business for themselves. So the very practical application of that is in launch from the beach, we at least get people on the beach to say, all right, I'm, I want to take control of my future. Now, it might be that for them, it starts way back like it did with me with just the basic personal growth. That's fine. You're on the beach. Let's get you growing and let's figure out the rest of it out. It may be they land on the beach and say, I have all these parts for a boat. I'm not sure exactly how to put them in the water. No problem. That's what the community is here for. We've already put boats together. Let's get yours going. But the, uh, the last piece is when that sailboat's sitting on the sand, the... Um, the, the tide at Techem Beach, Korea is, I think, the third largest in the world. So as a Florida man, you understand the tides. And most Florida tides are not really high. I mean, they're not really deep or whatever you want to call it. The difference between high tide and low tide at this beach, and we had a wall <laughs> to keep the high tide at bay, um, was, uh, I think, over a quarter of a mile. And so it, it was, it's a huge tide. And as the lifeguard, I would, we had a lifeguard stand, fortunately it was made of bamboo. And I would drag that puppy all the way out for low tide. And then we would walk between the flags. So I learned a whole lot about what it means to take your boat out when the tide is high instead of low, because <laughs> otherwise you need a trailer or you're carrying that thing all the way down the beach. And, but once you get it down there, you can either, let's say it's low tide and you land on the beach at high tide or it's low tide and you land on the beach and you can't get it down there by yourself. That's what a community is for. We get it down there for you. And it's so much easier. Once just, you just get one little wave underneath one little bit of water underneath that boat hull, and it's going to move for you. And all it takes is a few sisters getting you in the water. And once you get in the water, you can take off and you can sail. And you're going to capsize and you're going to go the wrong direction and you're going to let go of the rudder and go in circles. That's all normal. That's all part of learning how to sail. So this is what I mean when I say launch from the beach, we're going to launch your future from this really safe, quiet, calm harbor where we do this in community under the auspices of intentional optimism. That's such an amazing analogy. Thank <laughs> you. I like it. Yeah, it works really, really well. That's so cool. Good. <clears throat> the nice thing is too, it's inside the community, just as if I'm going to talk about that. It is a self-paced community. It's on Mighty Networks and women have the ability to come in and do courses at their own leisure, like what is intentional optimism or how to understand your core values. Then they interact on the platform. It's Facebook-like. They interact on the platform with other community members. I do lives. I do inside the community. I do, we have articles in there. We share book reviews. And then twice a month, we meet together as a community. Uh, early in the month, we do a goal setting so that, because that's part of it too, is it also encompasses the rhythms of the tides and the rhythms of life. And so we go on a month to month basis. We start at the beginning of the year, setting goals for the entire year and we adjust them as we need to, but we do a goal setting zoom at the beginning, first week of the month. And the third week of the month, we do what we call the gather and we do a status update and we encourage each other and we meet together and help us figure out what do we want to do for the 
last week of the month and how we want to meet those goals. And then what are we going to do reset for the very beginning? So um, it's all based on, it's all based on that same concept of um, the rhythms of life. This community that you've built, is it primarily virtual or do you have in-person events as well? Well, it started during COVID. So it is primarily virtual. What's interesting, though, is I have several local women who are in the community. So I, I think that if depending on how we grow now that I'm able to do a lot more work in the community and in my I have a I accidentally started a businesswoman's group in my county because we didn't have one. <laughs> And we're starting to do in-person events and the more women who join my community out of everything that I do here, I think it's more likely that we will. I also have a friend who owns a house in, <clears throat> what is it, uh, St. Martin or, and he said, I'd love to like this be a coaching kind of retreat place. I'm like, sign us up. This is the kind of thing I would like for us to do. We're not there yet, but that is definitely in the works for the future. Nice. Now, for those listening that, that want to get in touch with you um, and learn more about you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? My website, theintentionaloptimist.com. If you want all of my links where you can find many of these things that I've discussed, I'm on Instagram. I've just started on TikTok. Uh, I am on Facebook. I have the Facebook. I have a Facebook group that is called Intentional Optimists. And it's a little bit like a precursor to Launch from the Beach. That's a paid community. The Facebook group is free. And you can find all that at theintentionaloptimist.com forward slash links. And that's where you can find everything. But if you just want to talk to me, I have a 30-minute free consultation offer that is also included on that links page. Um, but you can also email me at Andrea at theintentionaloptimist.com. I reply to all of it. And I reply to all of my comments on social media as well. Awesome. Now, through throughout your adult life, there's been a lot of lessons learned, a lot of growth that's got you to where you are now. What do you believe was the most important lesson that you've learned through this part of your life. I shared a little while ago that my, we lost my mother in February, excuse me, in February of 2017 to breast cancer. I was 50 and I was already in the throes of what I would call my latest journey and um, really questioning why I believed what I believed about kind of everything. And I was very fed up with working. I left my job in August of last year, 21, I had a career of 23 years in university medical school administration operations and research administration. So I have skills that a lot of people wanted. And I still have people reaching out to me saying, we need research administrators. I'm like, good luck. because I'm not doing it anymore. But um, I was to a place where I knew it was time to take control of my future. And there's something about hitting the 50 milestone, especially for women that it's, it's like this bing <laughs> that goes off in your head. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I am, I am so not done with what I want to do for life. And so I was in the middle of discovering all of this and, um, mothers and daughters always have very interesting relationships. And I shared earlier how my mother told me very young, not everybody wants to hear your opinions. She, um, 
struggled with a lot of the things I struggled with and watched me struggle and wanted her daughter to be healthy and happy. And she started using the, the phrase fly, be free. You know, it's okay to just be you. And the, the older she got and the deeper our relationship became, um, I really realized that she was willing to accept me for who I was. So it was time for me to do that. And um, I accused her early on when I was younger of trying to make a clone out of me. Well, you know, my sister has a very similar personality to my mother's. I mean, you can hear her laughing across the department store. And I'm a little bit more like my dad, but I am different. I am the flamingo in the flock of pigeons. I am, I was the black sheep, but I've decided to call it a flamingo now. Um, I was the, the one that stood out as different and I just didn't want to be, I wanted to fit in. And by that time she was, when you know you're dying, it strips things down, right? It's like you, you cut through all of the garbage and you get down to what's true. At least I hope you do. I hope that um, my mother died well. <laughs> and that is not something that I can say for everyone. It is something that I hope I can say for myself. Um, she went out swinging and she went out swinging in a beautiful way. Um, the things that were important to her were only accentuated her faith, her um, desire to show people love, her desire to make everybody feel good. Um, all of those things became just concentrated and distilled as she saw her life leaving. She, we had to fight her to get her in hospice <laughs> and it was a hard thing to do. Um, and it was the right thing to do. And when she agreed to go into hospice, <laughs> The very next day, she said, if I'm going into hospice, this was in September of 2016, she said, then I'm also paying for all four of us because my sister got married before I did. But as soon as, as I left for school, we were never, we never did things together as a foursome again. I mean, we, like we never traveled much. We did a little one trip through Europe, but traveling was big for our family. My mother's favorite song and the, the anthem for my family growing up was Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. So um, for her, she said, if I'm going to hospice, then I am paying for all four of us to go on a cruise. And my dad, my dad was like, what? <laughs> you know, because he's super practical. And she said, that's it. We have a friend who's a cruise direct, a cruise planner. And she said, contact her, we're doing this. And so that December, the four of us went on a five-day cruise, Western Caribbean. And it was beautiful and it was hard and it was really hard on her and it was hard on my dad. Um, but we have memories that we would never have had. And then as we got closer and closer, um, my son was only eight at the time. And another piece of my story is that I went through early menopause and so I was told at 39, I couldn't have children. And so we went through the private adoption process and it took us almost three years. And so my son came to us when I was 42. So she was, or he was um, the, the youngest, my sister's kids, her, my niece was, I think, 14 at the time. And so for my mother, this was her little sugar cookie, you know, and they were close and um, we wanted to take him over there once a week to see her as much. And literally the Sunday before we lost her on Thursday, she sat with him and played, what is that? You drop the little colored things um, into the uh, connect four, connect four. She sat knee to knee with him and played connect four. She was, and she was fully made up. And I mean, there was just no stopping this woman, you know, and I, 
watched all of this and found myself saying, that's not me right now. That's, that's not that if I stick with this trajectory, that's not where I'm going to end. And I said, whether or not I like how she came back from being a, almost Colonel, um, cause that's, I haven't told you that part where she was nearly a Colonel, like in the GS 13. And then when I left for college, the mission board, um, tore down the six big houses that they had and built 16 townhomes. And my mother was the project manager for that project. Um, and at the time she still didn't have a college degree and she ended up finishing uh, summa cum laude university of maryland through the overseas program for the military um, after 14 different schools so there was no giving up for this woman there was that's where the undauntedness comes from and the tenacity and the courage to do what needed to be done and watching her do that i realized in myself i don't have that yet and i want that and I have the seeds of that. She's planted them in me for 50 years and it's time. And I took about four months and started writing down all of the things that I had learned through all this personal growth that I'd been doing. I mean, I was a Covey person and I was always reading books and I was learning a lot. And of course, I almost have a seminary degree. So there was all this theological aspect to it. And um, <clears throat> I looked at um, my dad had bought for her when she retired, because when she came back to the States, she became an administrative assistant. And I didn't understand that. And I think part of that was culture, but um, it was hard. And she struggled a lot with feeling like she always knew better than all the guys that were running things. And, you know, so the, there was just pieces and parts, but my dad gave her this beautiful calligraphy version of Pro Proverbs 31. Um, the most excellent quote depends on what translation you read. If you're a Bible reader, but it could be the most, uh, the most excellent woman or a most excellent wife. Either way, it was, um, King Lemuel's mom said, it's time for you to get ready, dude. And this is what you need to look for. Okay. That's the gist of it. And it was this beautiful calligraphy thing. And I thought, as we moved my dad out of their big house into an, an apartment, I thought, why? I don't, I don't like the Proverbs 31 lady. She's the one who like homeschools her kids and cans food and, the, you know, and I'm, it wasn't really by choice, but I was really more of a career woman. And <laughs> I'm glad I was now that I look back, but um, I had always wanted to be the stay home mom because of what I thought I was supposed to be. So I had all this conflicting stuff. And I started looking at that again and I realized, wait a minute that lady, she was a shipping magnet. She was a real estate developer. She was a philanthropist and you can't be a philanthropist if you don't have any money. And she clothed everybody in purple. And if you don't know anything about that time to have purple dye was a big deal. It was expensive or scarlet. And um, so you had, those were expensive things. She was a manufacturer. And the reason her husband was known in the gate is because of her. And that time of of uh, in that time in, in history, if you were at the gate, you were the decision maker. And the reason her children rose up and called her blessed is because she was this amazing role model for them. I thought, hmm, this is not all making sense. So I put it all together. I have sheets and sheets and sheets of writing and writing and figuring out and tables and um, outlining and codifying. And it started out with five tenants. And then I just, how do I leave out intentional? And and I wanted to cut, and then I decided to, I said, you know what, I might want to be a coach. And so I 
took a friend's advice and started working through the Maxwell program and wanted to call myself, I wanted to call what I was doing was becoming sanguine. And that's an old fashioned term for um, an I or an influencer. And because that's what my mother was. And I'm like, I I don't want to be Judy Jr., you know, but I want to be an expression of that. I want to make people feel well. I know how to do that. I know I have it in me. And so as I walked through all of that, I realized my my best friend says, you can't use the word sanguine. Nobody knows what it means. And (laughs) she's still with me and she's still really helping me in my business. It's amazing. But I realized that part of the whole purpose there was that it's intentional and it's optimistic. So the long story, but the biggest lesson was watching, watching my mother die and being willing to go through the crucible of grief and letting it produce something really beautiful um, that I was able to walk out with. Of course, grief is never really done, but those first couple of years were quite the crucible. And I believe that I came out shining and, and coming out with, I like to say a gem of intentional optimism. So I think that's my biggest lesson is really watching somebody at the end, do it well and decide, hmm, how am I going to do that, right? Do I want to do it well just then, or do I want to start now? And I said, oh, you know what? I think I'd like to start now. (laughs) And to tell you, when I can make a man cry, I feel like my work is done. (laughs) (laughs) I love your heart. It's big. That's beautiful. So um, <clears throat> I, I want to talk to you, and and I'm going to share this with the the audience. And and um, I just applied to do a TEDx talk, and the subject of my talk is about <clears throat> the importance of having women in leadership positions in male-dominated organizations in order to elevate the quality of leadership in those organizations. All right, y'all, if you're not watching the video portion, my smile is really big right now. (laughs) This means that this is not our last conversation, for sure. Um, This, uh, and this comes from 23 years. I spent 23 years in the fire service. Uh, very macho kind of culture, um, not very many women in leadership positions. And across North America, you'll find uh, toxic environments in, in fire departments where the leadership is lacking, where inappropriate behavior towards women is very common. Uh, women's contributions are not valued to the same level that, that you know, less than what they contribute is valued, you know, from men. And, and, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, uh, you know, It took a a very strong woman, female firefighter, who was a a great role model for me. But, you know, as a young man in the fire service that came into the fire service where 
the mentality was, you know, women don't belong here. They're ruining it for us. You know, it was a pretty ignorant mindset. And, but it was just kind of like, well, that's the way it is. And, you know, the women that are here, they know what we're talking about. Of course, you know, I mean, it's that stupid. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> When we're afraid, when we're afraid, we can convince ourselves of just about anything. So <laughs> this very dear friend of mine, I'm, I'm still friends with her when um, I, I'm divorced now, but when I got married, uh, she was the best man in my wedding. This is how much of an impact she had on my life. And it was this moment where I said something stupid. It was misogynistic at best. Um, and she pulled me to the side and said, hey, you know, I've had about enough of your bullshit. And, you know, you, I don't think you realize how ignorant you sound. You sound like an idiot. And I'm like, what do you mean? And we talked and that set me on a path of really enlightening myself and then as i moved up in the ranks and uh realized that when i took you know i took a promotion to lieutenant and i was in charge of people now and i felt as though there had been no leadership development for me and now i'm expected to be a leader but not really, because when I was going through the officer orientation, it was told to me that you aren't leaders, you're managers, the fire chief is the leader, you'll get your orders from him. And I was like, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, that goes against every bit of leadership stuff that I'm reading. Like, this is stupid. But that's very common in the fire service, apparently, from what I've found. Now, when you explore leadership, you'll find that the higher one's emotional intelligence, the more likely they will be viewed as a competent leader, if not an incredible leader. And in all those areas of uh, emotional intelligence, there's several that I would teach as being the most important to developing as a leader. Your communication skills, being empathetic, self-awareness, building relationships. And when you look at the evaluation that they do for gauging somebody's emotional intelligence, those are the areas that women score much higher than men in. Now, there's a huge correlation there when you have very low levels of effective leadership in an organization and not that many women. I just think it's <laughs> like just, it's right there for everybody to see, yet there's in these organizations, it's men that are at the top that got there by being a certain way and they're comfortable and there's no reason for them to change because everything works just great for them. 
Mm -hmm. it, it's not just the fire service. <laughs> right. And, and I just, but I, you have very real and very personal understanding of how that works. And, um, so it's a really, I, I'm, I'm impressed. It's cool. So that's, uh, that's the, the talk that I'm going to give. And, and that's one chapter in my book. Um, cool. So I'm really, I was asked yesterday um, by another interviewer, why is it that you think that women are uniquely qualified to lead? Because <laughs> that's one of my, I put out there, you know, people say, well, what are some questions we could ask you? I'm like, well, this is one of them. And you actually articulated it better than I do. So I'm going to steal your answer. But um, the, the emotional intelligence, I said, it, women are wired to build bridges, build community, build connections more naturally than men are. Now, we also live in a culture of, you know, five, 600 years where we've been told women do these things and men do these things. And so when we could blame men if we want, but I don't really think that's the problem. <laughs> I think that just because we're wired more towards one thing than another doesn't mean we can't learn. And I think that it's very easy. We always, if given, just like if you let go of the rudder, it's just going to go, the boat's just going to go in a circle. And we will always default to the path of least resistance if given the opportunity. And I did that in high school, right? It's like, I only played sports that I did well at. I only did classes that I didn't have to work really hard at. That's normal human behavior. So to think that men who maybe haven't developed all of their emotional intelligence that they could have gone into a profession where they're not required to, that's normal, right? So I don't want to ever devolve into demonizing the people in these situations, but being able to lay out in front of them and say, here are the facts. Because like I said, I came from the seminary world and I come from the evangelical theological world. Talk about male dominated. Um, and then I grew up in Korea. That's a very patriarchal society. Um, so I am fully aware of what it, and that's part of where my own personal conflicts have come from is not understanding why that was <laughs> like, I don't understand. This is logic. This is, if I'm created the same as you, why don't I have the same opportunities and being able to logically lay those things out. Not everybody's going to listen, but the people who need to listen will. And the more we help develop that um, in people is, is the means the, the next generations are going to be better. And that's one of the things my podcast is called Intentional Optimists, Unconventional Leaders, because a lot of times we've, women have been told that in order to succeed as a leader, you have to look like a man and, or in order to succeed as a leader, you have to have this much education or you have to write a book and sell millions of copies. No, you don't. And I love interviewing women with different leadership stories. And I do the same thing as you, like all the way back. And I say, what's your first memory of being a leader? And what I want women to see is that we are uniquely wired to do this. And coming out of this pandemic where nobody has emotional intelligence and where nobody has 
um, had to learn and be in community, that we are well suited to rebuild the structure of our societies. And if we don't take this opportunity, we will miss out on it. And it's not about personal gain. It's about better for everybody. And I always say we are the role models for the future generations. That means all of us. And if we're not doing that, then they will have the same challenges that we have. Now, for the, the men listening to this, um, there was a, a point in my career where I thought that it was going to take very strong, competent, uh, well-respected women to step up and kind of lead the charge of, we need to have more women here. But the reality is, is that that's, that's a big ask in a male-dominated culture. Mm-hmm. And there was a book that I was uh, pointed to uh, called Athena Rising. It was written by two naval officers, male naval officers, that talk about the importance of men mentoring women in male-dominated organizations. It takes a level of courage. It takes a, a level of professionalism that many men don't have in male dominated organizations. You know, they're, they're afraid. They're not asked to have it. They are not required to have it. And my challenge in the talk that I plan on giving is that men step up into these roles and, and mentor the, the future of the organization that's going to elevate the level of leadership and not just the the level of leadership but the services provided because to to make any organization better you need great leadership and i i think that you you've got to have more women in leadership roles to really uh speed up that process yeah, and we need to help people understand that it's not a threat, you know, and um, it, physically it is easy for men to dominate any situation, right? Not all of us out there are, you know, <laughs> big Athena women, but I mean, some, I mean, my goal this year is to get strong. So I'm like working on that, but um, I'm still, like I said, only not even five, two. So it is easy for a, a man to dominate a situation and for for us to think again, that women can on their own, I mean, we'll fight it, we'll link arms and we'll do it, right? I think that you're gonna see a lot more of that moving forward, Um, but it would be nice if we didn't have to do it on our own and to have champions that were willing to say, you know what, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna stand with you, right? And um, I don't think any of us want a leg up that we didn't earn. Um, We just want the opportunity to earn it, right? One thing that I would like to point out, though, you know, in my career in the fire service, I've worked with a lot of women and I've worked with a lot of men, mostly men. I've worked with more substandard men than substandard women, I guess, maybe just by virtue of the numbers, but (laughs) the, you know, they're there are superstar men, you know, that are just, they're freaks of nature that physically, 
they can dominate any room. But there are women that are powerfully built, that are strong, and it might take them, you know, more hits of a sledgehammer against a wall to get through it, but they're going to do it. <laughs> it's like my mother. It's like there's that tenacity, right? Um, so it, it to me, and this was a lesson learned very early on. It's not a person's gender that gives them the ability to do a given job. <clears throat> it's what's in their heart. And it's, and it's who they believe themselves to be. And with that alone, you can accomplish so much. Because I've seen some really big men that you thought could do anything break under pressure. Mm. And women that were half their size push past them. Mm. So you don't hear about that too much, you know? And, you, I don't. <laughs> and, and, and definitely not from those women. Yeah. Because they're not going to step up and say, hey, you know, I just worked circles around that guy. It's not it's not that for them. Well, no. And they had to work so hard to get there. They don't want to lose it. Now, I, of course, have no experience in that area of, of firefighting. And I, I don't want it. I'm really glad that y'all do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I couldn't even be a nurse. Right. I have to give myself a B12 shot once a month and I still have to go. <gasps> Right. I can't do it to somebody else. But the fact that um, they, they, from a woman's perspective, they have to work so much harder to get there. And like I said, I spent 23 years in really amazing medical schools, watching female researchers and physicians get paid less than men. Um, and when they, when they mention it, it's, <laughs> you're just an angry female, um, insert color or whatever, or, or nationality. And, um, I've, I've watched some really, really, really poor leadership cause women to completely leave the institution. And I stay in touch with those women. Um, but you know, it's, it's real out there. And for people to say, y'all are just complaining or you have equal rights now. That's not really true. I mean, on average, we still make 85 cents on the dollar and that has nothing to do with what professions we can get into. Um, and I just heard another statistic that as we age, the gap gets bigger and bigger, which is why it's 85 cents on the dollar, but over 50, it's like 70 cents on the dollar compared to men of the same age. And, you know, these are mindset things. These are, these are things we just, we have to change the way we see and the way we think. And in order to do that, we need people who have the courage to apply for a Ted talk and give it. Um, I'm impressed. I'm going to watch you because um, people keep saying you need to do a Ted talk. I'm like, I don't want to memorize all that stuff, <laughs> but um, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's great. I can't wait to hear it. Cool. Um, well, we've covered a lot and, <laughs> and I, is there anything that you feel we should leave the audience with? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to have the link to your website in the show notes, but just to, to close this, this episode, um, like you're, you're packed full of optimism and, and just wisdom that, you know, let's, let's end on a high note. What do you got okay. for us? 
Well, I like to say to, to the women, or well, let's start with the men. To the men, you have the ability, like you have a 15-year-old daughter, right? You have the ability to build this differently. You have the ability to build a different future and to put scaffolding in place for a different future for the women coming after you. So the women out there, you're not alone. You can do this. You are the answer. You are the role models for our next generation. We can do this together. And I am available, right? Even if you just want to talk for 30 minutes and help do a little strategy session, that doesn't cost you anything. And it teaches me more and more about the women that I serve. So I am available, but you're not alone. We can do this together. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, Please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.